morning, everyone. Uh, if you do have a Bible, could I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2? Uh, and we're going to pick up from where we left off two weeks ago, which is at the beginning of verse 11. Uh, we've called this series, as it says on the screen, True ID, because a key part of what we're doing in reading this New Testament letter together, or certainly the first half of it, is exploring our Christian identity. And in chapter 1, and specifically the first 14 verses, we nail down 11 I am statements. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask if you can still remember them, but here they are. Here's the 11 statements. I am a saint. I am a believer. I am in Christ. I am blessed. I am chosen. I am adopted, or I am a child of God. I am covered, or I am drenched in grace. I am redeemed, I am forgiven, I am sealed, and I am secure. And then a fortnight ago, we read the first 10 verses of chapter 2, which hopefully you've got open in front of you, where Paul reminds the saints at Ephesus and us about the amazing transition that has taken place from what they once were to what they now are. And so, for example, Paul says, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins. And then he also says, you used to follow or you once followed three things, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And he also said, you were, past tense, you were children of wrath, deserving of wrath, God's holy wrath. So in other words, their situation was bleak, it was hopeless, it was negative, but that is only part of their story and part of ours. It doesn't end there. You'll remember there is the but God. But God, who is rich in mercy and out of his great love, has made them alive. There's the transition from dead to alive. He rescued them, not because they deserved it, not because they did anything to warrant it, but they have been saved by grace, covered in your grace, as we've just been singing, God's extravagant, outrageous, life and death altering grace. And we considered what Paul then said around that two weeks ago. And so if I go back to our I am list, let me add five more from verses four to 10 that we looked at two weeks ago. Here's another five. I am alive. I am saved. Then we also thought about how I am raised up with Christ, I am seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, and I am God's masterpiece. I am God's work of art. I am God's handiwork. So for those who belong to God, for those who are part of this, here now are 16 I am statements that confirm your identity, that confirm who you are. Just take a moment again. I know we do this each time. Just take a moment again. If you belong to God, to just read down through that list. Inhale grace. Exhale praise. Let's pick it up again. 
at verse 11 of, of chapter 2. And as usual, we'll stand for the public reading of God's Word. Let's stand together. It's not going to be on the screen this morning, sorry. So you do need to, if you can, see a copy of it on your phone, your iPad, or in your Bible. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and its regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but you're fellow citizens with God's people and you're also members of his household. You're built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And in him, the whole building is joined together and it rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Please grab a seat. What, what Paul appears to do here is he appears to press the rewind button again. He clearly doesn't want the saints at Ephesus, nor us, to forget or lose sight of the incredible changes that have taken place in their lives. He's mad keen, mad keen, to help them realize this amazing transformation that has occurred. And so he starts this section of his letter by encouraging the non-Jewish followers, the Gentiles, to remember remember that formerly. It's there in verse 11, the first words we read. And so we're back to thinking back. Remembering is one of those ideas that should characterize all Christians of every age. We do it every week here at Windsor, either in the morning or in the evening, as we eat and we drink and we remember Christ and his death and his sacrifice. But remembering is an important practice. And here, halfway through chapter two, Paul is advising his readers, please, will you do it again? Remember your backstory. Remember the journey you've been on and you've made. Recognize what you've been saved from. And as I said, as we introduced this idea at the beginning of chapter two, taking a step back and acknowledging what you were can be incredibly helpful and beneficial in fully appreciating the dramatic shift that has taken place in your life, exactly how far you have come, what you now are. And so Paul says to the Gentile saints, don't forget. Virtually all of them at Ephesus were coming from this background. They weren't Jews by birth. 
And so as it says, they were nicknamed or they were called uncircumcised because none of their meals had been. But a key part of what Paul is doing here is helping them and helping us because remember, all of us are Gentile saints. But what he's doing is he's remembering those from a Gentile background in the Ephesian church. Do you know something? Once upon a time, you were rank outsiders. And so as he does this, and and in some ways, some people might struggle with this, but as he does this, he says to them, I want you to remember five things, five truths, five realities, five facts about your past state, your past spiritual condition. And they're worth noting despite how negative they are. And they're all in verse 12. As I say, some people might think, hang on a minute, given the fact that these people have moved on, time has moved on, surely raking up the past is potentially damaging. Who needs to go back and open up old wounds? They're in a different place now, this people group. So why bother backtracking? Why bother spending time recalling the bad old days? And it's a fair point, but Paul's blunt. And he doesn't sugarcoat anything. He's direct. But as I've said, I think Paul is at odds to communicate, despite how provocative it sounds, he's at odds to communicate the incredible transformation and considerable change that has taken place in their lives. And that only and celebrate and give thanks for your current status. It's only as you honestly recall what you once were Can you celebrate what you now are? And for some of us, and I know I've been stressing this as we've explored this specific chapter, some of us who have been saints, who have been Christians for years, we can easily forget. Can't we? We rarely remember or take time to recall the shocking and dire situation in which we once found ourselves. And therefore, we can be in danger of losing a deep sense of gratitude at the radical alteration, conversion, metamorphosis, whatever you want to call it, that has occurred in our lives by the grace of God. And so what were the five things? Well, they're there in verse 12 if you've got a copy of God's word open in front of you. And what he says is this, remember, says Paul, that you were, here's the first, and they're all bleak, they're all bleak. And so I just want to take a a brief moment to explain each of them. Because this is their backstory. This is also our backstory. So the first thing is, you're separate. You were separate. Now, not separated from. Separate from Christ. You were unconnected. You were literally without Christ. But in addition, this term also implies that the very possibility of Christ, the very possibility of a Messiah, an anointed one, a chosen one, that did not belong to you as non-Jews. They weren't initially, they weren't directly included. They were separate from Christ. Secondly, they were excluded from citizenship in Israel. Israel was a nation under God, God's chosen people, Gentiles weren't in on this. They were outsiders, rank outsiders. And just to hammer home the point, thirdly, they were foreigners to the covenants, note plural, the covenants of promise. All those promises that God had made to the Israelites via Abraham and Moses and David and Jeremiah, they were alien to the Gentiles. 
not directly applicable to them. This disconnection, this distance between them and God was further highlighted. And so fourthly, says Paul, you were without hope. Without hope. Any real, meaningful, life-changing hope was not yours. Not the wishful thinking, fingers crossed kind of hope that everybody does have, but the certain hope of an assured and bright future. As Gentiles, their future was dark and desolate. And then he says, and this may be the worst thing, you're not only without hope, but you were without God in the world. Now these all flow, they all connect, they all mesh, but here's where it comes to. You were isolated from your creator. So your situation was hopeless and godless. That's depressing. But as Paul says in verse 11, I want you to remember this. And he repeats it in verse 12. I want you to remember this. Don't forget it. And I know I, I, know I forget this. I take the journey that I've come on for granted. John Stott, in his commentary on these verses, writes, there is one thing in particular that we are commanded to remember and never forget. This is what we were before God's love reached down and found us. For only if we remember our former alienation, distasteful as some some of it might be to us, unless we do that, shall we be able to remember the greatness of the grace which forgave and is transforming us. And so Paul is adamant that his readers, the Gentile saints in Ephesus, that they do not forget what and where they once were. And for us as Gentile saints in Belfast, we've got to make sure that we do not suffer from spiritual amnesia. We've got to remember, remember, says Paul, remember, remember. Do not forget what you once were. But then we come to verse 13, and the two words, I love the way Paul uses kind of two words, it seems, every time when he wants to grab everybody's attention. This is what you once were, says Paul, then the first two words of verse 13. But now, something has happened. Something has changed. In fact, everything has changed. After such an indictment of the previous condition, Paul quickly reminds them of their current one. But even before we get to what has happened, the very fact that there is a but now is incredible. It's incredible because it reminds us that the inclusion of Gentiles was no afterthought in God's purposes. Gentile inclusion may have been secondary in the Old Testament, but it was still there. Way back near the beginning, right back to Genesis chapter 12, God makes a covenant with Abraham. What is that covenant he makes with Abraham? Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. But it doesn't stop there because it also says that all peoples on earth are going to be blessed through you. Gentiles are included. And not only that, whenever you read the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, they anticipated a day whenever all nations, including Gentiles, would stream to worship God. Isaiah 2, Jeremiah chapter 3. And again, it's not because of anything these people have done, but it has happened, and it still happens. But now, and here is the but now, but now, You who were once 
far away. Who, you who were once excluded, separate, foreigners, without hope, without God, you have been brought near. The distance between you and God is gone. The disconnection has been sorted. The separation has been repaired. Now there's closeness. Now there's proximity. Now there's relationship. And how did this happen? Who brought you near? In a word, the answer is Jesus. Jesus. But now, in, I included, you're now in on this. From where you were to where you are is nothing to do with you. It's all about Jesus. Back in chapter 1, verse 7, Paul has already said that in Christ Jesus, you've got redemption. You have been rescued through his blood. Here in chapter 2, he makes it clear that now you're reconciled. Now you are reunited in relationship with God by the blood of Jesus. You've been redeemed in Christ Jesus. You've been reconciled in Christ Jesus. Nothing to do with you. The cross has said it all. The cross stands at the heart of our faith, at the heart of our story. And as Paul goes on and he spills more ink, he gets his readers to see and capture the full extent of what happened at the cross. Of what Jesus accomplished there and why we must never forget to remember it. And I know there is so much depth in these next few verses. And I, I'm, I can never, I'm never going to be able to do them justice in a few moments. But the cross is not only a place of redemption. It's not only a place of reconciliation. It is also the place that brings down walls between people. Please do not miss this. The cross is the place that brings down walls between people. Jews... And Gentiles were separated as people groups. Barriers, dividing walls of hostility did exist between them at all kinds of level. But what Paul declares is that Christ, who is our peace, he has destroyed all the dividing partitions and has brought them together. Did you note what it said in verse 14? He has brought them together into one people. He has made the two groups one. And so Jesus is not only our peace, verse 14, but he also makes peace, verse 15, at the cross. His death, look at verse 16, his death puts to death their hostility. Distinctions now on the base of race or history no longer count for anything. And so at the cross, a new humanity is created, is what Paul writes, where people are united in Jesus by Jesus. Elsewhere, Paul will take this even further. He will say, do you know something? There's neither Jew, there's neither Gentile, yeah? But there's neither male, there's neither female. There's neither slave nor free. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now that doesn't mean that facts of human differentiation are removed. Men remain men, women remain dialed together in Christ. But Paul goes on in Ephesians 2 to make it clear that not only are people reconciled and brought together at the cross, but he also and ultimately says that at the cross, Jews and Gentiles, both of them are reconciled to God. Look at verse 16. What is this all about? To reconcile both of them 
to God at the cross, the hostility that exists between God and people. In other words, the wrath that was deserved, reference back to verse three, that has been turned away because Jesus has bore your sin, your judgment. And therefore, we don't only know and experience peace with each other, but we find and we discover peace with God. That is what the cross says. That is what the cross is all about. And then this peace, according to verse 17, was proclaimed by Jesus. It was proclaimed by Jesus to those who were near. In other words, to the Jews who had all the privileges of being God's chosen people. But it wasn't just uh, proclaimed to them, says verse 17. It was also proclaimed to those who were far away. So the Gentiles, us. And then says Paul, through Jesus, who is our peace, who made our peace, and who proclaimed our peace, through Jesus, we both now have access to God by the one spirit. You see, the result of reconciliation at the cross is open access. Via the cross, we gain entry into the immediate presence of God. Relationship is restored, which is one of the reasons why the curtain in the temple was supernaturally ripped from top to bottom as Jesus took his last breath on the cross. The curtain that acted as a barrier to virtually everybody, Jews and Gentiles, was pulled apart and therefore signaled, you know something? Open access. Open access into the immediate and intimate presence of God is now possible for all. And so through Jesus and his death on the cross, we have been reconciled to each other and to God. That is the upshot of the but now. And there's consequences, says Paul, and they're brilliant ones. Verse 19, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. You being Gentile saints. Instead, you know what you're now? You're now fellow citizens. Do you remember the way you were excluded? You were foreign. You're now fellow citizens with God's people. You now belong. Plus, he goes on to say, you're members of God's household, your family, your home now, you're safe. And you see this home that you're now living, it's got a decent foundation and it has got a critical cornerstone. It's got something that holds it all together. And what is the thing that holds it all together? Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone, and in him we're all now joined together. We're all now united to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his Spirit. God now lives in the church, capital C, church, universal church. So remembering is good, it's helpful, it's important, because it helps you to realize just how astonishing life now is in light of the but now. And so to sum it up, here's what he says, you and I, you and I who were once separated from, excluded, foreigners, without hope, without God, you have been brought near, you now have total unrestricted access to the Father. You are members of God's household, God's family, and it's all because of Jesus. And it's all because of what he did at the cross. At that cross, I'm reconciled to God. I'm reconciled to others. There's no longer division. There's no longer hostility. There is now unity and peace. And God lives and God dwells in his new humanity, his church. And we could stop there. And we could sing our last song. And what I'm about to say, I hope, doesn't take away from what I've attempted to share. 
But we could sing our last song that says, Jesus Christ, I think upon your soul that all of this becomes true. A foot of the cross. We're reconciled to one another. We're reconciled to God. We discover our true identity at the cross. And so as we sing our last song in a moment, I really want you to take time to remember. To remember what you once were, but also to remember who you now are. And the incredible transition that has taken place in your life because of Jesus. But I kind of feel I also need to say something about church unity. Universally and locally. Because you know something, sadly, there appears to be a lack of it at times. All too often there's disunity and there's discord. There's negative jibes and negative comments and comment and articles and posts and tweets. Distressing at times how you see Christians relating to one another. It seems that we as the church do a pretty good job of erecting new barriers in place of the old ones that Christ has demolished. We have a tendency to build walls that contradict the unity of the Christian church. It's going to name a few of those barriers. And I know it's always dangerous. Denominational barriers. Stylistic barriers, cultural barriers, personal barriers, racial barriers, social barriers, even theological barriers that separate. And we've got to be careful. Because you know something, not only does it offend Jesus who has painfully destroyed walls of hostility, but it also, again, as John Stott says, it offends our world in a totally different way. Do you know why? Because disunity and division and discord in the family of God hinders the world from believing in Jesus. It does. Jesus said, by your love for one another, will people know you belong to me? Jesus prays in John 17, Father, I pray that they may be one. Do you know it is simply impossible with any shred of integrity to go on proclaiming that Jesus and his cross has abolished old divisions and created a single new humanity while at the same time we're contradicting our message by tolerating barriers within our church fellowships. Yes, there are differences. I know there are differences, but you know something? Unity transcends differences. Differences must not become barriers. And what we urgently need today, and I appreciate that you get easily, I, I know if I'm honest, I lose hope of this ever happening. But what is urgently needed today is that the church should be seen to be what by God's purpose and Christ's achievement it already is. You see, unity is not something we strive for. It's something we protect. Because Christ at his cross has created a new humanity. One. Not something we strive for. It's something we protect. But the church should be seen as a single new humanity, a model of human community, a family of reconciled brothers and sisters who love their father and who love each other. And only then has the world any real chance of believing in Christ, the peacemaker. And I know it's a challenge. But I was thinking, how do you, how do you break this right down? 
And how I break it right down, the only way I can break it right down is, do you know something? It starts with me. It starts with my attitude towards each of you in this local church. It starts with our attitude towards one another in this local church. It starts with my attitude towards those in other churches. You see, you can either build barriers or you can build bridges. You can either speak love and grace or you can speak harsh words of criticism and fracture. Jesus is our peace. Jesus makes peace. Jesus has proclaimed peace. If we do anything to wreck that peace in his church, heaven help us. And may we, Windsor Baptist Church, be truly, in this sense, a church without walls. Please, God. We're going to sing. Jesus Christ, I think upon your sacrifice. You became nothing, you poured out to death. And it says, I'm back in that place once again, and I'm full of praise once again. And, and I invite you this morning, those of you who are saints, those of you who all those 16 I am statements relate to you, and you can say them with integrity, I encourage you this morning as we sing this song to take time to remember. Remember what you once were and to give thanks for who you now are because of Jesus Christ. Let's sing together.